Just as math is more than a collection of theorems, history is more than a collection of facts. It's an intellectual enterprise that requires piecing together an accurate story from partial scraps of faded words. And the process never ends. Its destination leads to a new beginning. True historical inquiry must end where it begins, with a question mark. This is the Past for Plebs. As always, I'm your host, Sean. Today's episode on our podcast has some visuals and resources posted in our YouTube channel of the same name, The Past for Plebs. I've put the link in our YouTube channel in the podcast description below, so be sure to head over to YouTube to visit the channel, and don't forget to subscribe while you're there. Without further delay, let's dive into some history. So over the last few weeks, I've been reflecting on my teaching practice. For those of you who don't know, I am a history teacher. Uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of led me to kind of revisit where I began. Like, why does history matter? And kind of look at the philosophical approach that I take toward history education. Um, so I teach at a public school, which does have particular requirements and expectations when it comes to curriculum. Um, so there's things that I have to do. Uh, but there's also like a philosophy behind like what exactly is the best practice for teaching history. Um, and oftentimes, we the best thing to do is try and get those things to line up, right? What do I have to do? And then what's the best way to do that? So today, I wanted to talk to you guys, just open it up and kind of just talk about what is the best way to teach history? Um, so I want to take you back to when I was in graduate school. One of my professors made a really, really great point that has really stuck with me for the past few years. He basically said that the goal of a history teacher is not to memorize, but rather it should be to interact with history. Um, so he gave a really good example. He opened up the lesson. This was awesome with a bunch of quotes on how Americans do not know history. Like at least 20 quotes of people complaining about how Americans don't know their own history. Um, and I'm sure many of you have seen this, like if you go on like YouTube or even just like reels and stuff, there are so many videos out there where people will just like stop you on the street and they'll just ask people basic history facts. And of course, the people that they show, they stumble over the answers, they give the wrong answer, they don't they have no idea about just like the basic historical stuff um, that you think maybe people should know. Um, I think what was really surprising about this lesson in grad school was almost all of those quotes that he provided us were from the last 200 years. Like they weren't even recent. Like the most recent one was like maybe 2000. But then it went back to the 70s, to the 40s, to the 20s, to the 1800s even. And so it was a real big moment because apparently people today know more than people ever knew, believe it or not. So here's a great example. I found this New York Times newspaper printed 1943 from April 4th. And on the front page, it complains. Here's the quote. College freshmen around the world showed a striking ignorance if even the most elementary aspects of United States history. And it reports that only 6% 
of students could name the 13 original states. That's from 1943, people. For those of you who know what was going on in 1943, that would be World War II. And this is not like before Pearl Harbor, World War II. This is after Pearl Harbor. This is after the Battle of Midway. We're gearing up to invade Europe. Uh, so this is the greatest generation that we love to hail as, you know, the greatest generation. They're the best Americans that there ever were, right? They fought Hitler. They defeated the Nazis. Of course, they're going to know about their country. And so it turns out that the way we picture the past, we envision, we have this idea that people in the past were just like super patriotic and they knew everything about, like they knew all the presidents. They could, they could, you know, they could recite the constitution word for word. They knew every amendment. And the reality is a little more murky, right? Um, a lot of people didn't know that stuff. And it kind of makes sense. If you think about it, today, people are way more informed than the generations of the past. Um, as we all know, like for the last 15 years, everyone has had the internet, like access to the internet right at their fingertips. At any moment, anyone could stop, open up their phone and search a random fact about history. And they'll have the answer that they were looking for in seconds. And then some, they'll find whole essays, full blogs, you could even look up some journal articles. Like you could get any answer that you're looking for in seconds. So that brings us back to the original question. Why then would schools train kids to memorize things, memorize details in history, if we can just search it up at any moment? So that was a really, really good lesson that the professor kind of taught us. Um, because I think a lot of times, especially when I was a kid, I mean, it was different in the nineties and the early two thousands because the internet was there, but it was not there, right? It wasn't like accessible at every moment that really changed in the last 15 years. Now it is, it's very accessible and kids know this too. They know that if you're just telling them, Hey, memorize all these people, memorize this date, memorize this thing. They're going to shut down uh, or they're just going to be like, <laughs> okay, I'm just going to look it up and then I'm going to copy and paste that answer and then I'm going to submit it and I'm not going to waste my time because there's other things that are more important. So instead, we have to try and figure out a way to teach history and design lessons that kind of tap into the historical process. So I'm going to give you guys a little example in the way I design my history lessons I kind of look for three things. So there's threefold what I do. First and foremost, I always think, I always go back to what real historians do with history. I think about my days in college when I got my history degree, when I was doing history. What do historians do? They investigate the past. They produce documentaries. They, they write books. They engage with the public. And they basically just teach about their discoveries, right? That's what a historian does. They research and then they share. I take those ideas and then I design lessons around that concept, allowing students to basically do that, to be historians. The other two things that I like to keep in the back of my mind are one, what skill is required them in that particular activity? Uh, we'll get into that like skills. And then lastly, what, what am I ultimately wanting them to learn about? So those three things in partnership, 
they help me plan a lesson. They help me plan what I want the students to do, and then we get into some real, real awesome history. Have you ever received a letter in the mail that you struggle to understand? Can't figure out what some of these road signs mean? It may be time to learn how to read. Reading can be difficult. If you've been paying attention at all to this episode, you know that I too was a weak and helpless reader. But thankfully, there is a solution. Now you too can read like a historian by grabbing a history book and reading away. You can dive into the deep end with the classics or go find that old dusty copy of Beowulf that you never actually read in high school and just try it. Join the Pass for Plebs on our YouTube channel with opportunities to learn how to wrestle with difficult sources and how to make sense of what language and writing actually is. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe to the channels and smash that like button. So those three things in mind, in the back of our minds, um, I want to share with you some of the resources that you can use to help teach history to yourself, um, or if you are a history teacher, or even if you're just a teacher, maybe you can kind of give, use some of these ideas or the concepts uh, in your own lessons. Um, I'm going to give you some pros and cons of each resource. Um, a lot of times, you know, no, I mean, no source is perfect. No method is perfect which is why it's so good to use a variety of methods and a variety of resources when you're learning about history. Because, um, you you know, reliability, whether or not you can trust something, and all that. So we'll get into that. First up, I want to take a look at timelines. So we're going to talk a little bit about timelines. Before we get into timelines, I do want to just kind of mention, if you haven't yet, go on over to our YouTube channel, check out the video that is posted this week because the visuals that go along with that are going to really help you um, visualize what I'm talking about. So I'm gonna, sh I'm gonna show you some of these resources on YouTube so that you can kind of follow along. But without further ado, so timelines. Um, timelines are really, really great because what they do is they demonstrate the chronological order of the events in the past. So it basically gives you the order in which things happen. And that is really, really important. I mean, to know that something happens before something else, that's going to give you the ability to understand cause and effect, right? Um, for example, I'll give you a quick example, right? The American Revolution. That's always a, a big one. A lot of history teachers who teach American history, I don't, thankfully. We'll get into that. Um, but if you do... The road to revolution, right? The causes of the revolution. That's that's usually like a whole unit in itself, maybe a couple units. A lot of people focus a lot on that, and it's and rightfully so. You want to get those events in order properly so you know what caused the next event, what caused the revolution. And that's really important. If you think, if you get these things mixed up, let's say you think that the Boston Massacre happens in 1780, right? Well, the Revolutionary War begins in 1775, 1776. That doesn't make sense because the Boston Massacre was one of the key moments in American history that would lead to the revolution starting, right? So it's important to know that it happens earlier, 1770, and then eventually leads to the big kickoff. Now, there are some issues with timelines. So at, at their best, they do give you a nice little image, a visual picture on what's going on 
in the time period you're looking at. But the biggest issue that I have with timelines is the inevitability of the events that it shows. When you learn history, it can be difficult to remember that events were not predestined. And this is a this is a very interesting thing to kind of get your wrap your mind around, right? We living in the present have the advantage and in some cases the disadvantage of knowing what happens next when we're learning about something. It's very easy to fall into the trap of fortune telling. So I often hear this when we refer to like military history, right? A big battle will happen um, and, you know, someone will, will come in and critique the commander and they'll say, oh, the commander should have done this instead, right? Or, oh, man, if, if they only did this, if they only could see, then they would have not lost, right? Um, I've heard this. I've actually heard this exact example. Um, one of my professors uh, who, you know, I, I didn't really like this professor, just between you and me. Um, but this professor was to defend her. I will say this was not her specialty, right? So she she was not a Civil War historian. She, I don't even think she was an American historian. But anyway, she was teaching a class, and she made an interesting comment about the Civil War. Um, so she showed us an economic map of the war in 1862. And keep in mind for for those timeline people. 1862 is about a year and a half, maybe two years into the war. So the war's been going on for a little bit. But you also have to know it's, it doesn't end until 1865. So the war's nowhere near being over. We're not even to the halfway point. So we see an economic map of industry in 1862. And the professor noticed the industry might of the Union forces, the Northern forces, right? When compared to the South, which was mostly agrarian or farm-based. So far, so good. This is definitely important, you know, uh, to, to look at this and say, wow, you know, this makes sense. This makes sense. Um, there's definitely an argument here to be made as to maybe why the North won the Civil War, right? If you go down that road, you could do economic history. You could talk about industry. And that's great. But then she followed up by saying, wow, it's so obvious when you look at this map that the South was going to lose the war. Why would anyone continue to fight if they knew they were going to lose? Now, this is a, something called a historical fallacy. This is fortune telling, right? We know how the war ends in 1865. But people in 1862 did not know who was going to win the war. Assuming that people living in that year in 1862 could have known that industrialization would have played such a key role in that war is really not thinking like a historian. Now, it's not to say that certain people probably didn't think or knew that industrialization was important, but no one knew which side was going to win. And actually, if you look at the war up until that point in 1862, there you could make a case that the Confederacy was actually holding their own and in many cases was winning the war. Um, their commanders were on average, performing better than the Union leaders. The South had made some significant gains up until that point into the war. If you interviewed, if you went back in time and you interviewed most people in 1862, a lot of people would be very concerned and, and a lot of Southerners had a pretty good feeling that they had a chance of winning the war. Or at least, I mean, 
And, and what does that look like, right? Winning the war, what did it look like? Maybe beating back the Union enough to just cement their, you know, independence. And, I, and I'm doing air quotes around independence because that's a whole that's a whole podcast in itself. So we'll get there. Another example, maybe the Civil War is not your cup of tea and that's okay. But let's look at the modern day example, right? We don't know what's going to happen in the future. We can't. It's impossible. We might have some ideas about what might happen, but we can't really know for sure, right? So as historians, we have to remember that people in the past also don't really know what's going to happen next. They might think they have an, they ho- they hope something will happen. Maybe they have an idea, but we have to be careful with timelines. They can they can kind of fall into that. Um, another weakness of timeline. This is a little bit more minimal, but it's it's definitely a concern. Um, they're often one dimensional, and so there are some really fancy ones out there that that can really jam pack just like as much information as possible. And I don't know about you guys, but like for me, I actually struggle with those because like I don't know if I just have a simple mind or whatever. But I I, I get lost when there's too much in front of me, I, I, so it's hard to read. It's hard for me to read those. But oftentimes timelines are just too simple. Um, they show just a handful of maybe predetermined dates that whoever designed the timeline just chose those dates and put them on there. So we have to remember that they're not perfect. There are things that are missing from timelines. Um, and so historical context is key. So timeline's really great place to start your research. It's a, it's great to get cause and effect, the order of things, but it shouldn't be relied upon as like, oh, this is the end all be all of history. We want to, we want to add it with other resources. So the next resource I wanna visit is similar to that of the timeline. Um, It's a visual resource and that's like charts and graphs um, and maps, of course, I love maps. So what's really great is statistics and like history are a beautiful combination. And lately, I would say in the last 50 years, maybe even less, the modern age, like we value data like so much, maybe more than ever. Um, and so for that reason, we like to just quantify the past, put a number on it. Uh, you know, how much, going back to the Civil War, how much industry was there in the North compared to the South? Like, let's get a number. Let's measure how strong these countries were, right? Um, this is great, but it's also important to remember that we have to use caution when we take this approach. A lot of times when we simplify history into just like a simple data set, you can fall into some dangerous traps. We have to remember that history is the story of humans, like human beings who actually lived in the past. We're talking about their lives. When we treat a human life as just like a unit of measurement, we're really minimizing the humanity of that person. So a really, really, really important example of this is when you look at casualties from big events. In many cases, the death tolls in some of these conflicts or famines are like just jaw-dropping. Millions or tens of millions of lives lost, damaged. And so it can be really difficult to remember that these are people. Um, especially like the world wars always come to mind because tens of millions of people died in, in each war. Um, and it's And sometimes when you just get like, you just look at the graphs and the charts of how many tens of millions of people lost their lives. You just forget that those are people. So that's really important to remember. 
Um, the last teaching resource I want to share with you guys here is the good old-fashioned history essay. So as I, as I mentioned before, I was not a great reader or writer when I was younger. Um, and writing history essays is not the easiest, right? But doing it, exposure and practice to this taught me how to do both of those things better, right? Read and write much better. So I'm going, I plan to do future episodes on like how to, the writing and research process for history because it really is a science. It's, it, there's a step-by-step -step kind of process to it. And, you know, you can, you can kind of play with the, with the routines and, and kind of switch the uh, order of operations around. But the idea is that you come up with a question that you want to research about. And it could be anything. That's the beautiful thing about history. Whatever you're interested in, go ask that question and see, can I find an answer to that question using sources? This is a really, really great way to connect what you learn into something succinct and well-organized. So even if you're not in school, I mean, a lot of people who are older, they're probably thinking like, the last time I wrote an essay was like 30 years ago or whatever. You know, you can just write an essay for fun. I, I do it sometimes, um, and maybe it's because I'm nerdy, but just pick a topic you're interested in and go research it. As far as school goes, I mean, there's challenges when it comes to like grading an essay in the modern age. Um, so this is where some of the cons come in. Artificial intelligence. I would be a fool if I didn't mention it. And if you haven't heard about it, then I don't know what to tell you. You're kind of living under a rock here. Um, the AI in this age, and it's still in the baby stages, but let me tell you, it's it's getting more and more intelligent with every moment. At this point in the game, AI can already write pretty much whatever style of writing that you teach it to. So it can write an essay in a matter of seconds on any topic in any style that you train it on. So it's really easy for students to just fake their own work. And so this is the reason that I personally... I don't really use essays as like a true assessment piece in my class. Um, I do from time to time, but you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. And, you know, do I trust this grade? Is this this person's writing? Now, there's probably people in the comments are saying, what, you never sign essays? Like, what kind of teacher are you? I do still assign essays, yes. But it's important that, you know, you kind of like, you kind of balance that with other forms of assessments. So... For example, like when I when I plan a, a more exciting lesson than just, you know, write this essay, um, I, I try and pull out elements of what an essay is, and then I have students do those things in, in different ways. So in other words, basically students are learning how to research and how to write an essay without actually writing an essay. And so that's kind of the beauty of planning, planning and uh, teaching in the modern age. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. To sum up the episode, I think it's important to remember that history is not just a series of dates and facts. It is a continuation of the human condition. And so the more types of sources you use when learning history, the better off you're gonna be. Next week, I plan to share how I use interactive maps to teach history and geography in my classroom. It should be a lot of fun, so stay tuned for more Pass for Plebs. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean.